So we've got El Flood with us here today. Um, El's had a hell of a year and an interesting couple of years, actually. So she works as an account executive in AdRoll, which would be really cool to hear about because she's actually very passionate about sales. Um, but in the past year, she's also been diagnosed with cancer and has been on a hell of a personal run with that. And um, she's been very kind enough to, to share her story here today. So look forward to delving into that. But I think we'll start with the more shallow stuff and uh, start in the, in the light end. So you studied commerce in UCD. Yes, so I studied commerce between 2012 and 2016. Um, and in between my second and my third year, uh, I took a year out and I started working in an accounting firm in Dublin. Um, I did this because everyone was doing it and I felt that there wasn't really any other options or that I wasn't really educated about other industries. So I went into that for nine months and I mean, it was great to see what the corporate world was like, um, but it made me realise I definitely do not want to work in that type of environment. It was really bureaucratic um, and I felt like my work just didn't really make a difference to the company and I was just really, really junior and they were almost like doing a favour having me there. It's like they could say, great, we take on interns. Um, so after that, I went back to college and I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I've always had an interest in tech and everything digital, but I really didn't know anything about it. And UCD don't really talk about the different options out there. Like you walk into the Quinn School and you see PwC, KPMG, it's it's everywhere. You're almost kind of brainwashed. So funnily enough, it was actually one of my mom's friends. Her son worked in Adroll. So she, her, she was just telling me about her son and how much he loved tech. He used to work in Accenture and then he moved there. So I met him for a coffee. And the minute I stepped into the Adroll office, I thought, this is where my career has to begin. It was so cool. It's like really fast paced, really young. Everyone just looks so happy to be there. So that's exactly what I did. I finished up commerce and I went into AdRoll. Um, I felt like when I left, there was, you know, people had ideas like, why is she not going into the accountancy world? You know, that's the only place that you can make money, et cetera. And I still think that there is this conception around Ireland and um, that you do need to go into like these massive big firms or become a lawyer or you know follow that corporate lifestyle when that isn't really the case um so I absolutely love Adderall I've been there for yeah. three years and um I definitely I'm going to continue my career in sales was it scary going back to when you did the internship and said actually this is this stuff isn't for me this whole world isn't for me and as you say you're often kind of told this is the only world that exists for you career-wise was it scary having that realization and saying, either I'm going to go into the only world and be unhappy, or I'm going to have to go off and find a new one? Kind of going against the grain like that. Was that a scary thought or realization for you? It's absolutely terrifying because I just felt so lost and there was no one I could talk to. Mm. Um, you know, like I said, there was just no other options really in UCD. There, you're just plastered by all these um, accounting companies everywhere. Um so it was really scary and it was really hard for me to find the right company. Um, but I knew once I got into AdRoll and now that I've learned more about the tech space, I will never, ever go back. Yeah, I don't think that's exclusive to UCD. I think just the size of these companies, the number of grads they take in, take in every year, there's huge budgets put into the marketing and that's why all the rooms are named after them and that sort of stuff. It's pretty crazy. So realizing you didn't want to go into that, then you kind of, you luckily had... Uh, someone to at least talk to from Adderall and get a look into that whole world. 
going into tech and not knowing much about tech, as you said, was that a scary thing? Or did you learn more about the world before you went into it? Oh, it was, I had so much to learn. So I was actually interviewing for Adderall while doing my final year exams. So when I was studying for all the different subjects, I pretended interviewing for Adderall was like another subject. So I would study for all my exams and then I'd have to take out time to learn all about the tech industry. Um, and there was so much to learn because I, I really didn't know anything about it. Um, so I literally just studied so hard and then obviously went in for my interview, was successful and started straight away. I did. I had the exact same thing. I was interviewing for an investment bank in Australia while I was doing final exams. And I always wanted to do the thing. It was, was going to be a Skype interview for my final interview. I always wanted to do that thing where you have a suit on top and then boxes on the bottom. So I did that and I was ready, sitting in front of the laptop for Skype, all my notes laid out. And then they called my phone. So I went from kind of like the joke was on them to now I was just walking around my apartment in a suit and boxes. So the joke was on me and I felt ridiculous. But it all worked out okay anyway. Um, I think a lot of people have to go through that, the interviewing towards the end when it's really just crunch time. Yeah, completely. I think... Um well, actually, a lot of people have their interviews done. Yeah, most people have jobs lined up. Yeah, for yeah. sure. You know, I had no idea if I was going to be good at sales. And I didn't really know much about marketing, nor did I do very well in marketing in college because all the essays were really, really fluffy and everything like that. I was good at accounting, so that's what I did. And that's what I majored in, yeah. maybe. Um, but I just knew that that world wasn't for me. And I knew that in marketing, there's so much to it, you know, like, you know, you can go into sales, there's this um, digital, then you can actually go into like become a digital marketing manager. There's just so many different strands that people think that they just kind of compartmentalize marketing and just say, oh no, that's just one thing you go in for. You're not going to earn that much money when in actual fact, it's massive and yeah. it's so diverse. Mm. I, when I talk to people, I kind of break marketing down really simply, digital and creative. And digital, like people traditionally probably, I don't know, maybe didn't get paid that much of marketing. 1980s in Madison Street, New York, where Mad, Ma Mad Men is set. Oh, that yeah. whole world, those creative agencies got paid loads back then. But then it kind of became commoditized and was lower paying thereafter. But the digital marketing there today, it, and you know, that whole creative thing, people can paint it as fluffy or whatever, and accountants probably would. The digital stuff is so data-driven. And those people can get paid very well in tech companies. So it's a very valid career choice for people who want to make a few bob. But I think sales probably is a bit more lucrative. Is that what brought you towards sales rather than marketing? Yeah, Stephanie. I, so I knew that I wanted something that was obviously really fast paced, a young environment, but also somewhere where I could see my efforts make a difference to the company. So when I was in the accounting firm, you know, whether I did or didn't do my work, it really didn't make that much of a difference. Yeah. But when I'm in sales, every single second I spend doing overtime or maybe working through lunch or going in early, I directly get the money in my back pocket and I love that. Yeah. Um, and I am a really competitive person by nature. So that's why I think it suits my personality. Um, but also in terms of a further down my career, like I've no idea if I'll stay in sales or what the story will be, but I think if I can convince people to sell a product over the phone or over email, that's massive. And mm. I think any employer is going to want to take you after that. For sure. It's like the core skill of probably almost life is learning how to sell and convince, et cetera. What was your journey with sales? So you go in as straight away as, as a grad. Do you do inbound, then outbound, then AE, or account executive? Or what, what does the ladder look like in that role? Sure. So I first went in um, as like sales development. So 
and mainly focus on outbound. So I had to do like send about 500 emails a week. Right. We have a lot of tools, so I physically wouldn't be writing yeah, those emails. Sure. Um, and then doing a lot of cold calls. And I did that for about a year and a half. And basically I'd uh, have the first call. I'd educate them about ad role and move them away from our biggest competitors, which would be Google and Facebook. Obviously so hard to move people away from those guys because they're the market leaders. Yeah. Um, so I'd convince people of that and then I'd pass that on to um, an account executive and then they would close the deal, talk budget, et cetera. Right, okay. People will hear that and think, I don't want to do cold calling. I have found cold calling to be quite stimulating. I certainly did in Google. I probably, I, I don't really do it anymore, but uh, it is stimulating. It's where a lot of the skill in sales is. It's where somewhere the most sort of deft skill is in trying to A, get past the gatekeeper and then B, maintain someone's attention while also getting information out of them and giving them information all basically while like the match is burning down and they have to go. Have you found it stimulating or do you just... Like, I'd say a bit more than half people don't like it. I mean, I kind of think it's hilarious. So, um, obviously, sometimes it's annoying when you're not doing well in the quarter and, you know, you're really scraping the barrel to try setting yeah. a point for the account executive. Um, but sometimes I get these crazy people on the phone, like, screaming at me. And we'd actually take the phone off our headset and have it on loud so that everyone else in the office can listen to it oh and we're just God. all laughing. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's hilarious. Or you can get these people sending you psychopathic emails and we all think it's funny we actually have a channel called mean responses and we'll post all these responses onto our slack channel and then i'll just laugh at them oh my god so i mean i love that that um, speaks to the camaraderie i think in sales as well yeah which is pretty hard to replace yeah and i also think you just develop a, a kind of thicker skin to these things as well but you have to in sales you know you can't get bogged down by these things so um i think just in terms of personal development it really stands to you as well yeah a big thing I found going from Google where I learned how to cold call into uh, starting up my own little ventures, cold calling is literally the backbone of doing something yourself. So you have to know how to cold call and be comfortable doing it and confident doing it. And only last night, so this this episode will be aired two weeks after last night's episode, but we had a really good entrepreneur in, um, Dan Hobbs, and he was saying that basically picking up the phone was the skill that brought him to where he was. So picking up the phone, giving someone a call, you know, having the ability to, to talk to them and uh, exchange information is so key. So yeah. that's a big plus for going into sales. People think it's a negative. Exactly. It's a huge plus if you think medium to long term. And I also think there's like a process you do when you first call, call someone. So obviously they can hang up literally like straight away. Mm. So I would try and give them like a little bit of information that you're kind of teasing them with different yeah, yeah. things. And then eventually they say in the call longer and you're like, okay, now I can actually properly pitch them and get them on board and hopefully secure another call or whatever it may mm. be. Um, so, I mean, I love it yeah. when you're doing well. It, it's an emotional well. roller coaster. Yeah, that's all of sales, I think. So you go in, you do the cold call in the, the sales development role what and you do really well and then what happens yeah. next? So then next I moved, it was actually a bit of a weird thing. So I really want to get promoted initially into account management. So in account management, you'd be given, let's just say 15 clients spending about 800,000 or so and you need to manage these guys, upsell them. And I wanted to move into this role, honestly, because I didn't have the confidence to move into sales. Right. Um, I was so scared about closing deals and talking big budgets and everything. Um, and this is something I still do lack confidence in. And I don't really know why, because I've done well in sales. Yeah. Um. So, and I was basically pulled in by management and they said, you're not going into account management, you're going into sales, you're a salesperson. And I remember getting really annoyed because 
you know, I was like, I know who I am and I'm not a salesperson. And they said, you are a salesperson. We know you are. Um, so I was kind of bullied into the sales role. Mad. Yeah. And what's funny is so it's ad role before I moved into the sales role, you had to, you could only close deals if they're spending above £5,000 per month. And then they said, we're missing out on a huge market, market, market opportunity and we want you to go for it. So I was the first person in ad role to do small business sales. So everything from spending between 1K and 5K. Okay. And initially I remember giving out because I was like, I don't get any commission, you know, if I'm closing deals that small. Yeah. But they said, you will, you just need to close deals at scale. And what's funny is nobody serves that part of the market. Google and Facebook obviously won't talk to them because they're tiny. Sure. So when I was reaching out to people, they were like, oh my God, finally, we have a human that we can actually talk yeah, to. Yeah, right. Um, but at the same time, a lot of these businesses, it's their own money. So they're very, they're quick to pause campaigns and yeah. things like that. Um, so I did that and I've been doing it for a year and a half. I used to do like a lot of direct clients, but now I focus more on selling to agencies. So obviously agencies have a vast um, range of clients spending sure, yeah. small amounts and big amounts. So I just manage that now. Yeah. Uh, zooming in there, the account manager versus sales, as you would say, or account executive role. So just for people to understand those, the sales or AE role, people go out and win new business. The AM role is for existing clients and you try to get them to buy more and fix their problems and that sort of stuff. So much kind of maybe slower paced and... Uh, more relationship-based type of selling, whereas the account executive is probably sharper edges, negotiating the contracts, all that sort of stuff. Uh, is there generally, uh, and in my head there is, is there generally a gender gap between those? So Massively. would you would, and is that actually a thing? I've oh, never I've never spoken huge. about this before, but it's I've huge. just wondered it. So would a, a female be more inclined to become an AM because it's a it's a nicer. Uh, I, I guess for want of a better term, like a softer edge role or perceived to be that way. Yeah. Because you, you do notice in companies, there's a lack of female a, account executives or AEs or salespeople. Yeah. So you're kind of br breaking a gap or going against the grain with that one. Yes. And so in Adro, like it, there, there is a big divide. Um, but, you know, with Adro, they are, um, they are very gender neutral. Like they, they're not going to choose you for a particular role because you're male or female. Sure. It's going to be the best person wins, which I agree to as well. Um, but what I've noticed is from past kind of interviews that I've done, I've been told before, you know, it's really good you're going for this because you're female and you're in sales, Yeah. which I get why they said it, but at the same time, it annoyed me. I said, mm. you know, I want to get this because I'm the best person and not just because I'm female. Um, but there is a big gender difference and I definitely think it comes down to confidence and I don't know what it is with girls that maybe we do lack confidence a bit, but you know, we should just go for it with sales because Chance, it's just ourselves that's thinking that we're not good enough when we can just give it a go. And if it doesn't work, you just change. Yeah. It doesn't matter. That's actually something I'd love to see a big difference in. You see these gaps uh, turn up in different areas. Like en engineering is a really obvious one where there's like a really small number of, of females doing engineering. It's mostly male. But, and you can imagine why like women would see that environment and be like, nope, not my thing or whatever way they've been inclined throughout their education. But with the sales role, the women I've seen do it have been probably like disproportionately successful in it. I don't know if it's a trust building thing or what it is, but they seem to do really well. But yet the young ones aren't encouraged to go into it or they don't feel the confidence to go into it. So that's actually something that would be worth changing. How could you change that? So funny enough, a manager actually said something to me and it really stuck with me. So I remember when I was being bullied into the sales role, I said, I don't want to do it because I want to have um, control over my workload. So 
you know, I was like in account management, I have my set amounts of clients, I do whatever they want done and then that's it. Um, and then someone said, you actually have way more control if you're in sales. Because if you think about it, if you're in account management, you're pretty much working for someone else. Yeah. You need to do all their stuff, whatever it may do. You're also, they're so demanding for different things. And at the drop of a hat, you need to do something. Whereas in sales, you have way more control over your workload. If you want to work late to close more deals than you do that. Or if there's a client that comes to me that is honestly really picky and they only want to spend about a grand, I'll be like, no, I'm not going to bother work with you mm. and I'm going to move on to the next person. So you actually have way more control. And once they said that, it's just like a penny dropped. Yeah. And that was probably the defining moment that I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to get get this go. Yeah. I've never come across a role that has more autonomy than sales. Yeah. You literally do whatever you feel like or need to do to get a deal done or hit a target or whatever it is. Uh, it's a pure meritocracy. So yeah. it's all based on merit. It's really, really good. And I think people with personalities that would be inclined towards that or individual athletes or anything like that should definitely give sales a go. And for the competitive stuff as well. So yeah. do you guys do co competitions and that sort of thing and that role All as well? the time. Yeah, I love it. Uh, so there'll be like different things. Like you could win like restaurant vouchers or flights or anything like that. My most recent one is I won 250 euro voucher for Ryanair. Right. Um, for it's like the most amount of activations or something on my team. And then if you get if you um get the highest amount of revenue, you get taken out on like an all expenses meal and different things like that. And they've a really cool competition. And if you're the best salesperson that year, I think they take like ten people or so, you get flown on an all inclusive trip to like Hawaii, Mexico, wherever the it may presence be. Presidents Club or whatever it's called. Yeah. Yeah, well, right. High rollers. High rollers, that that's is, what right. we call that's it. That's cool. Yeah. Um, it's really good. I mean, particularly in Ireland, I think, where there isn't much high finance. Tech sales is where people get paid the most money in Ireland, to my knowledge, for sure. And I've kind of looked into it. Um, absolutely. So for grads going out there looking for just high paying jobs and high quality life, tech sales in Dublin is is where it's at. It, London tech sales and uh, probably high finance, like trading or whatever. But tech sales is right up there. It's pretty cool and really nice environments to work in as well. And lots of autonomy. Like. I do it, so I'm biased, but I, I think it's class. Like, I yeah. don't see many downsides to it. The pressure can get to people, so, um, and myself included. I'm not saying I'm immune from that at all. So if you're having a really up month, and then you have a really down month, or a quarter, or a year, or whatever way you're measuring it, that can be quite emotionally taxing to go up and down. How do you deal with that? God, honestly, not too well. It's something that I need to continue to work on. Um, and it, it really gets me down. I get... It can take over my whole mood, but I suppose what helps me, it's it's so basic, but uh, so I walk in and out to work every day and it's five kilometers each way. Mm. So I have a lot of time to think and process things. So I think in that time, I really just kind of let go of work. So if something's really bothering me, I'm probably going to think about it for the first like 3K of my walk and could be listening to music and I will have no idea what song played. So I'll just be thinking things over my head. But then by the time I get home, I was just kind of left and I'm just like, okay, there's nothing I can do about it. Let's just focus on it tomorrow. Um, and I think we'll probably get into this later. I think it would bother me a lot more, but I definitely have a new perspective on life after getting sick. Yeah, and sure. I'm just like, it, it really, it doesn't matter anymore. And if you have a bad quarter, you have a bad quarter. At the end of the day, it's just your commission paycheck that's yeah. affected. And, you know, obviously that's great in life, but it's, it's not everything. It's not everything. I just view it as a sport. And sometimes yeah. you win games and sometimes you lose games. Yeah. Um. So that's probably a pretty smooth segue into last year then and, and what happened. So you've got this newfound perspective yes. because of uh, 
some pretty awful news that you got last year. So can we tell people like what it was like to get that news and where, you know, the whole journey there, I guess, even? Absolutely. So it was last July and it was just the most unexpected thing ever. And my life was completely turned on its head. Um, so basically what happened is I was out for dinner with... What age would you have been? 25. 25, okay. Just turned 25. Um, so I was out for dinner with my parents celebrating my 25th birthday. And my mom said, you know, what is that lump at the side of your neck? And obviously for half a second, I was like, lump cancer straight away. But, you know, nothing had changed with me. Like I, in terms of like weight or, you know, anything that you typically associate with cancer, fatigue or anything like that. So I didn't really think anything of it. And then about a week later, I said to one of my colleagues, oh, my mom noticed this lump at the side of my neck. And they were like, yeah, it's, I suppose there's lump there, but, you know, really, really think anything of it. And a couple of days later, he texted me to say, I saw this article about a girl that had a lump in her neck and it was cancer. So I thought, fine, I'll get it checked. But it was really, I really had to be pushed to do it. Um, so I went to the doctor and she was like, has your weight changed? Are you tired? All the kind of typical questions. And I said, no, I don't think anything's changed. And in hindsight, I was definitely the thinnest I've ever been, but I put that down to stress, which is something people do the whole time. They're like, I'm stressed. That's why I'm doing this one. You really shouldn't put it down to that. You should just go to the doctor. Um, So she, the doctor did my bloods and she was quite passive and she was like, I don't think there's anything gone wrong here. And she sent me for an ultrasound. So a couple of days later, I got a text to say, your bloods came back fine, but go for the ultrasound anyway, which is a bit worrying that my bloods are fine. I, I, think I need to question that um so I went for an ultrasound and then um maybe like the next week the doctor was like would you mind coming back in to see me and it was just so casual that I didn't even think anything of it like I almost felt I forgot to pay my bill like it was just nothing so I went in and she was like it's cancer and honestly I don't even remember the conversation I think my body just went into shock so I um I just remember feeling so claustrophobic and I felt like the room was getting smaller and I pretty much just ran away from her and just left. Um, And you were in there on your own as well. That's the thing. And I think, I don't know if she's ever told anyone she's had, they've had cancer before because she was like, I I don't know if I should have told you to bring someone because it would have scared you. But, you know, she was saying things like, um, you're not going to die from this, but you do have a journey to go on. And then other questions like, how good is your health insurance? And I don't even think I could answer any of these questions. So I left and I was walking down Bagot Street and it was just such a unique situation because I felt like I was just so alone. No one in the world knew about this, obviously beside the doctor. And I felt like everyone was staring at me. I got super paranoid. And then I started walking back towards my office and then the questions started to come up. I was thinking you know, am I going to lose all my hair now? How am I going to tell my mom, you know, or my family? And what am I going to do about work? So then I decided to call my dad and I don't know why I decided to call my dad. Um, and honestly, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And when I said it was cancer, he just fell silent. And I started screaming at him to be like, answer me, you know, like, you need to talk to me right mm. now. And he just said, I'm on the way up to Dublin. So yeah. it was crazy. And then I started walking home and funny enough, I started to Google thyroid cancer and it is the only thing you can Google and it tells you you're going to be fine, which is very rare. That, so any other type of cancer you Google, it's kind of like you're in trouble. 
Well, I feel like you could Google that you have a cold and they're going to tell you it's cancer. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So <laughs> when I started Googling it and it was like thyroid cancer is fine, I was like, okay, this is going to be grand. Yeah. And then basically when I got home, I kind of spent a lot of time with my parents over the next couple of days and I told work, I'm not going to be in. I've obviously just gotten this bad news. And then we got put in contact with my consultant in Vincent's. And when we called him, we actually realized that he is originally from where I'm originally from in Meath or where my family's from. And my mom had heard about him from other people that's gone to him and he's like an exceptionally good consultant. So we called him and we left voicemail just about the connection. And then he called us back and said, you know, you shouldn't have been diagnosed with cancer yet. You need to do loads of biopsies and things like that. And then I thought, crap, I've told so many people, well, so many people, like yeah. my managers that I have cancer when it probably isn't cancer. I was in complete denial. So I then went for my biopsy and everything and it was confirmed it was cancer. And then I got this news and about five days later, I was supposed to go to Sri Lanka. And my parents pulled me aside to say, look, we don't want you to go, but we know, we know that you're going to go anyway. It's just my personality to not stick around after something like that. I yeah. knew I needed to get away. So my consultant said, you know, it's not life-threatening, so go to Sri Lanka, but the minute you get back, you're into Vincent's. So I went to Sri Lanka and, you know, he kind of warned me, he was just like, be careful when you're out there and just, you know, don't do anything stupid. And I went to Sri Lanka and probably drank every single night. Um, and I, I still think it was the best thing I ever did because I forgot that I had cancer. Really? Did you actually get out of that headspace? <sighs> well... I suppose it was always at the back of my head, but when I was in Ireland, it was there constantly. Sure. And I was so stressed the whole time and so tense. Mm. Like sometimes I'd look down and my hands would be in a fist because I was, my body was just so tense. Wow, you're right. But when I was in Sri Lanka, I was busy and I was doing different things. Yeah. So it was fantastic. And then reality mm. hit when my mom called me halfway through to say, okay, your, your surgery's been booked in. So... And then it all kind of became pretty yeah, real. Then. It was yeah. like a massive tsunami. I was like, crap, here we go. Um, so then I got home, I went into Vincent's and the night before my surgery, I actually got kind of excited for my surgery because I was like, finally, I can just put this behind me. I'm so done with this. So I, and I actually texted her because I hadn't told loads of people. I kind of forgot about it when I was in Sri Lanka. So I text people the night before my operation to be like, I've got cancer. I'm going for an operation, chat to you later, put my phone in airplane mode. Probably isn't the best way to do it. That's but mad. um yeah, it it was a weird one. Um so I went for my surgery and that's the, kind of where the problem started. Is the surgery to remove cells or what is it? To fully remove my thyroid. Okay. Yeah. Um so that's kind of like where everything started. I went down for surgery and it's called a total thyroidectomy and it's so common. It's like getting your tonsils out. Surgeons do it all the time. So before my operation, it was obviously really emotional. I gave my parents a big hug and went down for my operation and they did an ultrasound. And when they were looking at my leg, they said, okay, this is spread quite significantly. And obviously when you hear cancer and then spread, you just think you're screwed basically. So I went back up to my room and my parents had left. So I didn't want to call them. So I called my brother and he sounded so scared on the phone, but was obviously trying to be so reassuring. Yeah. And I was Googling like crazy. And it turns out thyroid cancer spreads your lymph nodes quite quickly. So I was like, okay, this, this is normal-ish. Um, but with me, it would just, it spread a lot. So it's like my whole neck basically. 
So I was brought down for my surgery and unfortunately it was supposed to be like two and a half hours and it went on for five and a half hours. And basically when they were in there, they'd never ever seen this before, my consultant. So the tumor had wrapped around one of my nerves. So you've got two nerves that connect your vocal cords and that allow them to open and close to allow you to breathe, eat, um, talk. So my surgeon didn't want to cut this nerve because he was like, her life is going to be completely different if I cut this nerve. So they were calling other surgeons to say, what shall we do? And eventually the decision was made to cut the nerve. And to date, it's something that it's so hard for me to accept because, you know, this surgeon, and I know it was the right decision to make, but this decision was made about, you know, my body and I had no control over yeah. it. Um. So they cut the nerve, they took out the tumour and they left all the lymph nodes because they were like, we need to leave her, see how she recovers. So I remember waking up and being quite happy because I was like, okay, it's over. And my surgeon was there and he just said, look, it, it wasn't a success. And that, Your heart would just sink at that point. It, to be honest, it did, but I didn't really fully, it didn't really fully sink in. I was on so much medication. I was also in so much pain. I... I don't, I was all so hazy. Yeah. Um, Did you have to be told a few times? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. I, I had no idea the extent of the nerve damage until about a month after. So, um, so then over the next couple of days, they were observing me to see, could I um, eat properly? And thankfully I could, but my speech was completely off. It was really, really timid. People couldn't hear me and it was horrible because I had so much I wanted to say about how I was feeling and I was just like a prisoner in my own body. So I had to have to go for my second surgery to fully remove all the lymph um, around my neck. And I had to sign a waiver to say, if a nerve has to be cut on the second side, I'm going to wake up with a trachea coming out of my throat to breathe, which was terrifying. And I signed the lease and I went back up to my parents and I literally just got into bed, didn't want to talk to anyone and I just forced my body to go to sleep because it was almost too hard to be conscious. Like I was in so much pain and I was just so upset about the whole thing that when I was asleep, I actually, it, I was, it was like an escape. So I went to my second surgery and thankfully that was a success. They removed everything. So now I have very little feeling like at the bottom of my jaw, my neck, my chest, uh, which is weird. It's like when I put on makeup, I just don't feel anything anymore. Yeah. Um, but like minor details. So they took out everything and then I had to wait about six weeks before I was due to go in for radiation. So my surgeon was like, this is what you're going for. You know, you want to remove everything and then get to the radiation stage um, because that means that everything's gone. And then during this time, you know, I obviously didn't have a voice. I was in so much pain and it was just, I was just going through so much. I was on a mixture of Oxycontin, Xanax, I had to actually an alarm on my phone for every four hours to take medication because I was just in so much pain and I had to stay in the same bed as my mom so she could like lift me out of bed in the morning because my neck was just so sore. Mm. Um, so I went through all that and then I went in for radiation, which is a crazy experience. Yeah, I remember you talking about that. I'm just thinking you're listing all those drugs, but confusion would be at the top, near the top of that list as well in terms of what's screwing with your head. It would it's kind of undigestible or unfathomable for me. I can't imagine it. It's unimaginable for me uh, how you could fathom the fact that you're going through something like that in reality. Cause you hear about it with other people, but again, obviously you never think it's going to be you. 
Oh, massively. It's like you don't really let it sink in. I feel like I was running on adrenaline. Yeah, I'd imagine so. Yeah. yeah so it's like, you know, it's like it was affecting my parents more. And I would just look at my surgeon with a blank face to say, okay, what's next? What mm. am I doing? And I, it was like a tick the box thing that I just needed to get through everything. And it's actually only now that it hits me. And a couple of people said that to me, be so careful when you're healthy because this will hit you massively when you realize what you've gone through. Yeah. And that's something I'm kind of dealing with now and have been dealing with for the last couple of months. And I really didn't expect it. I thought I was getting through this all so well. Um, but it's only now sometimes I even stop myself and say, I can't believe what I've gone through. Yeah. Um, I have a weird question that's hard to phrase. Go for it. Did you develop a relationship with your cancer? Or did you did you kind of feel like I'm in it, I'm in this against you and you felt really close with it, et cetera? Or did you kind of did your self perception almost leave your body and then just that's how you were able to remain so cold during the whole thing when your doctor was telling you new news? You'd just be like, Yep, okay, what's next? Yep, okay. You kind of felt distant from it as opposed to feeling one on one really close in as in you were going through this journey with the cancer. Yeah. I, it's a very hard question to word. I don't know if it's making any sense. No, it does. It does. Um, so I feel like, and I know this sounds really weird, but I feel like I never really had cancer. Okay. So it's like when the doctors tell me everything I needed to do, I was like, okay, let's just do this. But I, I don't know. I suppose I, again, I think it's the adrenaline thing. I think I was yeah. just running on adrenaline. I'm just like, okay, let's do this, this and this. But, um, but you didn't give the cancer a personality per se. No. Okay. I think no. that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I really wanted to. I think I just said, okay, let's just get through all these different steps I need to get through. I think that was my focus. It's like, I wasn't focusing on the cancer. I was focusing on the surgeries and the treatment. Okay. Um, I don't even know if that makes any that, sense. It no, just no, felt like a separate person. That actually makes sense. My, I, I think it's, my question is hard to describe. I've written before about death being a personality and having it as such almost made it maybe scarier because it was a relatable other thing whereas if you're just coldly looking at the process like yours like I'm wondering about the psychology behind it that's probably a better one to have yeah I think so um rather than thinking this thing is growing inside me and it's you know it could be killing me that's a pretty scary idea yeah and to be honest think back I'm really happy I didn't have that because I don't think I would have kind of gotten through it like yeah, I did yeah it would have been harder for sure I definitely think. so that's really admirable psychology that you were able to maintain that distance and just truck through it basically ticking off the the processes yeah and it's something that people say to me a lot you know you're so strong and whatever and I wonder if it's a case of like is that who I actually am or I don't know it's it's a weird thing but my mom is like an incredibly strong person and she has been through loads so I like to think I got my strength from her and that's yeah. how I've managed to to get through it and my family we became so close that's during amazing. it yeah. yeah like I think I said to you we had um family dinners in vincent's in the, yeah in the hospital the whole the time. time yeah That's we were brilliant. getting face delivered and delivery was like updating my home address to vincent's and google maps did the same thing as well so um yeah i mean it was actually lovely because like my dad and my two brothers they're based down in cavan so they drive up and you know we have dinner in vincent's and then they drive back home so it was nice i think it definitely helped me get through it all this feeds into what we talked about the other day which i firmly believe uh, that these things happen for a reason and that this is probably, you will look back and say, thank God that happened to me back then in my life. Because for one, it's brought your family closer together, which is great. But then two, and the stuff we talked about, 
the idea of like L in five years having had cancer will be a very different person. And I would imagine a far superior person to Ellen five years had she not had cancer. And just all the lessons that you're taking from this and the growth and the development, uh, that's going to basically compound over time. And in five years, you're going to be a, such a transformed, such a bigger person uh, and able for much more and able to comprehend much more. There's going to be so many positives to come out of the whole thing. Yeah, you're completely right. Like I know... So I was talking to another couple people about this and they said if you've gone through trauma at a young age, you actually make for a really good leader because you've got loads of empathy, but at the same time, you also have a different perspective on the world. So you can say, hey, that isn't that big of a deal. Like we can get through this and you're just a lot more resilient. Yeah. And I remember when that was said to me at the time, I think it was when I was going in for my first round of radiation. I thought, like, you know, I, I don't feel like this leader person. I don't feel strong, but... Now, looking back, like it's definitely, I know this is definitely going to stand to me in life and it is just going to make me a better person. Was it hard to adopt that psychology or did it kind of straight away come out of it and you're like, yep, I'm going to be better for this? Or was it kind of still thinking, God, why me? This sucks. Poor me. Yeah, no, definitely. There was a lot of why me? You know, what have I done to deserve this? And also the fact that it's unexplained. So if I was a smoker for years, I'd say like, okay, Mm. this is why I got this. Or if I did loads of tan beds or something like that. But that's absolutely, I don't do either of those things. So I was definitely really, really angry for for months, honestly. And it's only really now that I'm on the better end of it that I'm able to let it go. Um, I still hold on to some anger. And the biggest anger is the voice thing. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's going to be a huge part of my life. And it's something I'm always going to have to... Uh, think about it and be conscious of. Yeah, we talked about it. I, I tried to throw positivity on that yeah. the other day as well. It'll make you a better listener, a more um, pensive person. Yeah. And will make you a more concise communicator as well. So that in a few years, or probably maybe already, definitely not the case with me, where someone would say, oh, Elle's talking, that's going to be a valuable contribution rather than Mark's talking, does that guy ever shut <laughs> up? And I think that will, uh, as a theme, will kind of grow and continue as well. Yeah, it's funny because before I had the voice problem, I used to interrupt people all the time. Really? Yeah, I actually, before I even got sick, I actually had voice nodules, uh, which lots of people have from talking too much and talking too loud or whatever. Um, and I people would always say, stop interrupting me. If any of my friends listen to this, they're going to be like, just smiling away. <laughs> um, but it's something I I can't do anymore because I just, I can't keep up with people when they talk really loudly. So it's made me kind of be more reserved, sit back and say, okay, is, is what I'm going to say actually relevant? Yeah. Um, and then whatever I say, I hope is, you know, obviously um, quite powerful then. Yeah. My my thing, my body didn't really work for a while. So I started reading. Couldn't use my body. So I started reading my mind. Did that happen to you as well? Or did you, did you start reading other materials that were different or anything like that? So in terms of like body materials or like? No, just like about life or like if you're stuck in a hospital bed for X amount of days or weeks, there's not much to do. Did you ever take up reading or has it put you on any new path now yet? Yeah, so I I just massively researched absolutely everything. So I was like researching different things about cancer and a lot of stuff about diet as well, which is something obviously we spoke about. And I was reading a book in hospital called How Not to Die. Yeah. And the nurses would pick it up and stare at me and just say, why are you reading this book? Um... And that was all about diet and how you should adopt a vegan lifestyle. And I've done a lot of research on my own and it does make sense to adopt a vegan lifestyle. And it's something that I've tried and I've massively cut back on all meat consumption. But 
you know, at the end of the day, I was on these crazy diets when I was sick and mm. I weighed like 42 kg. Like my dog actually weighed more than me. That's it was crazy. bad. Yeah. So, you know, and I really appreciate food to a whole other level now. Yeah. So I don't want to limit myself, but at the same time, you know, it's like during the week, I'm predominantly vegan slash vegetarian. And then when I go out, if I don't like the vegetarian option or I'm really hungry, like I'm going to get a steak. Yeah. Um, so it's all that flexitarian lifestyle that I'm trying to live by right, now. Nice. I remember in school, if I was in trouble, I'd be standing outside, say, the teacher's office and you'd see everyone walking past and you'd kind of feel they don't know how lucky they are to be able to just run outside now. I've got bloody detention or whatever it is. And you kind of had this feeling in your stomach of, woe is me, they don't know how lucky they are. Did you ever have any feeling like that to write this whole thing? Massively. I had such jealousy. And I still do to some extent. So, um, you know, obviously Instagram's absolutely massive. Everyone posts their entire lives on Instagram. Yeah. So when I was sitting in a hospital on like a Saturday night and I was flicking through Instagram stories and I saw everyone out of drinking, I actually had to put away my phone because I got so jealous of those people. Especially when I saw people out you know, drinking loads or if they're doing any drugs or anything like that. And I was thinking, why are they healthy? And mm. I'm here and I don't do any of that stuff and I'm sick. Um, so definitely I, I felt huge jealousy and it's, it's something you just can't shake. I think it's just embedded in people. We just have it. Um, and still now sometimes, you know, if people say a story with like loads of pitch and tone and different things like that. I'd be like, oh, I'm so jealous of their vocal cords. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. God, I wouldn't have even thought about that one. That's yeah. funny. Yeah, or there's a guy in work who's really good at presenting and he stood up and she's cracking all these jokes and it was really good and I was like, never going to be able to do something like that. But it's small things. like that. I think, honestly, you fantasize about these things. Yeah. Um, Because what someone said, and it's so true, they said you're mourning a loss. And you probably felt it too when I lost my vocal cord. I was mourning that loss that I, I'd never be able to you know, talk really long lengths of time or do like a really hearty laugh or shout anymore. Um, and sorry, I've lost my train of thought here. Um, if you weren't able to shout anymore. Yes. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden you start fantasizing about that and you think, well, you know, if I you know, did of my voice, I'd always be shouting or I'd definitely be presenting way more or different things like that. But in actual fact, I'm like, would I be doing those things? Yeah. So it's it's a funny thing. You de you definitely fantasize it once it's, once it's gone. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this the other day. Such a key skill with life is acceptance. And for me, what goes with acceptance, it's kind of one step further, is trusting the way, or we talked about the Tao, like yeah. the, the idea of Taoism and that's just Tao. The Tao is basically the the working order of the world that we can't do anything about. And just accepting it and then trusting it that it's taking you to where you need to go. And so if you fall into water and uh, the water happens to be moving really rapidly and then you get drifted down water and end up washed up on a shore somewhere, that shore is where you're supposed to be. That's the that's an idea of uh, Taoism and trusting yeah. it basically. And instead of arriving on the shore and saying, oh, God damn, now I'm here. How do I get back to where I was? Or, oh, I bet it's so nice where I was saying, okay, I'm here. Thank God for that water bringing me to where I'm supposed to be. Now let's see what I'm supposed to do here. Very Two very different attitudes. The second one is obviously uh, the more positive one. Yeah. And I think we've both been ruled out of so many things that we want to do and uh, could have done and planned to do, which is an important one. Accepting that we can't do them anymore. And I think everybody listening will have 
as severe or maybe a milder version of this. And it happens to everyone, whether it's a relationship ending or a job ending or whatever it might be. Accepting that the plan you had for yourself can't happen because the Tao, the way of the world, the, the written script, it's not meant to happen. Accept that. Accept where it's taking you instead. And look positively and wonder positively, where might this be able to take me? And that's going to be a key skill, uh, I think, for both of us as we learn to kind of accept the things that have happened and uh, and trust that they happened for a reason. So like you, even with the voice thing, as I say, I'm guessing your brain is going to grow hugely <laughs> from this in a way that it wouldn't have if you were still going to all those lunches or in work and just talking, talking, talking and not taking it all in. Or you probably might end up reading more, whatever the case may be. There will be positives coming out of it or from it for sure. Definitely. I actually bought a book on Tao after I talked. Really? Um, no way. Yeah. It's a, it's a random one. So it's called The Tao of Poe and it's like... or The like Tao of Pooh? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Po. It's Pooh. Um, it's Winnie the Pooh, guys. Yes. It's not, yeah, yeah. Um, I've just heard it's really good because the thing with Tao is just like, it makes complete sense to me. And when you were talking about it, I remember saying, okay, a penny's definitely dropped. But I think what's important is that it's a process. You're not going to wake up one day and think, okay, this was supposed to happen no. to me and accept it. And I think that process can go on for years. So I remember when people, so many people said to me, have you accepted what's happened to you? And I said, no, I haven't accepted it, but I can cope with it. And mm. I think I can cope with it quite well. Um, and I think that's the first step you can take. And you stop being angry about your illness and you start coping with it and dealing with it and, um, you know, changing your life, altering your life for, for that. And then getting to a stage that you accept it. And I don't think I'm near accepting it, but I'm pretty sure I'm on the path. Yeah. I think that uh, there, you, there's never kind of like, it's not a binary thing. I'm not a Taoist. Okay, Tuesday, I'm a Taoist. Um, there's a hundred moments in our days when 70, say in my day, where 70 of them or 60 of them, I can accept and trust and be a Taoist. The other 30 or 40 moments, I go nuts and I'm the opposite. And if I can rack up that number, 60, 70, 80, 90, and I'm human, there's always going to be some left over. And I think no matter how inverted commas Taoist and, and accepting or trusting you can become, it will be challenged every time. It's almost like a muscle. You're trying to train a natural reaction to something. You're trying to train in a second nature. That's a very hard thing to do. But if it's, it, I guess you start off doing it consciously and then eventually you would hope that it does become a second nature and your perspective just shifts and you end up being a natural truster or acceptor of whatever happens. Definitely, yeah. And that'll be a huge part of the leadership stuff I'm guessing you're, you're talking about then as well. People, There's a question people always ask, casually. Uh, what would you do if you found out you had cancer? What's the answer to that? What does actually happen? What goes through your mind? I'm guessing that people would say, oh, I'd go and travel or run or whatever it would be, but the reality is you're kind of frozen in time then and you can't do anything. You're almost debilitated by shock. Is that the case? For how long is that the case for? I think you're honestly debilitated in shock until the very end. Really? Yeah, and also you can become quite pessimistic, um, but I don't even think that's the right word. You become a lot more idealistic. Um, so I... Sorry, maybe take a break for a sec. Yeah, sure. Yeah. We good? Sorry guys, just took a quick break there. Um so before we finish up, want to hear the end of the actual story. So the last we heard you were going you're about to start radiation treatment. 
Yes. So you have to go in this crazy diet before um, where you have to deplete your body of all iodine. So that's in like fish, dairy, um, anything really from the sea, but random things like you can't have any red sweets or you can't have anything that is uh, in salt and so many things obviously made in salt to preserve it. So you have to deplete your body of that um, and then you go in for radiation. So I did my radiation treatment in St. Luke's in Rathgar and it's so bizarre. So you go into this like isolation suite. There's only five of them around Ireland and it's basically like this concrete room. So you go in there for four days and everything you bring in with you has to get thrown out. So your clothes, your phone, everything. Um, so you go in there and on like a Tuesday and they bring out this massive big concrete block and you have to pick up this concrete block and knock back a tablet. And then the minute you take that, you and everything you touch is radioactive. So then the doctor obviously leaves the room. What's with the concrete block? So because when the uh, radioactive iodine tablets are transported in a truck or whatever, they need to protect the driver. So that's why they're kept in these concrete blocks. Right. Yeah, it's so strong. It's crazy. That's so delicate or strong. Yeah. I know. Nuts. And then I had to pick up this block and knock back this and like it can't touch your lips or anything like that. Um, so I did that. And when I was in there, I was just so weak and I was kind of used to being in hospital. So it didn't really hit me how claustrophobic the whole thing was. Um, but it's crazy. You have to shower like three times a day. You have to drink loads of water too. Um, so you release the radioactive iodine from your body and there's like a little hatch that um, the doctors will open and give you your food but when they open up that hatch you have to go to the other side of the room and it's all brought on and like disposable plates um, and like no nurses come and come in with you there's a little camera that's watching you the whole time to make sure you're okay um, so yeah it, it was horrible and I was so happy when it was done because I thought okay that's that's me done I never need to do that again Um. And then I had to wait three weeks and I got my third operation then. And this was for my voice and probably the operation I was most apprehensive for after my first, um, because this was really going to decide whether I was going to get my life back or not. So I went into Vincent's and what I got was it's this thing called like a volume injection and they inject acid into your vocal cord and move it from its paralyzed state. So it's kind of like, off to the back of your throat to um it brings it to the middle of your esophagus so that your healthy vocal cord can come and meet it so I got that injection and it pretty much started working straight away and I bawled crying when I woke up and I could talk properly it was just amazing how long had it been since you hadn't spoken properly three months three months yeah that's crazy yeah and like I never thought I'd be able to um, go out again or even go to a restaurant again everything was just so difficult um, and I was so embarrassed about my voice you know if I actually bumped into a couple of people from school who I wasn't in contact with and they were like oh my god what happened to your voice were you out last night it's so bad and it took all my will to not start falling crying it was just too much to explain in like such a short period yeah. of time and like a half chance Were meeting. You out last night. God. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes I play along. We're like, yeah, I had a wild one in coffers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I I got this injection and my life started slowly to fall back into place. So this is December, so I went back to work. Um, but what I actually didn't mentally prepare myself was was for, you know, getting back into life and how busy the world is. So and just how loud everything is and you know, it's just all go. 
so there were sometimes I'd be in work and I'd just get this wave of anxiety and it was like fight or flight syndrome. I think you've had this before. Yeah. And I'd literally just pack myself and leave and, you know, mess my manager and just say, I'm, I'm done for the day. Um, and that's something I, I got for about a month after. And even like when I was out socializing with my friends, I'd get this idea. My voice is not working. I need to go home and I just leave and wouldn't talk for hours. Um, I think it's completely normal though. So I had that for all of December. And then in January, I uh, went back again to meet my doctors and was pretty sure I was going to obviously get the all clear. And then they said, okay, we found something else, but it's really, really small. And basically what it was, it was a tiny lymph node at the back of my throat. Uh, so they were like, it's tiny. We don't know if it's cancer, but it's, it's inflamed. So we need to get it out. Um, but the scary thing was, is cancer had never, ever been seen in this particular area. And it was a really awkward area to get at the back of my throat. So it's like kind of in a corner. So the, the doctors were talking about, you know, how are we going to get this out and everything. And they actually have all these thyroid conferences every single month. And they um, bring in doctors from the US and all these centers of excellence. So you have to like put a case forward and the worst case obviously get put forward. So mine was always put forward. Right. And the doctors apparently were quite stumped. They were like... I don't know what to do. Maybe you should leave it. And this relatively new doctor said, I'll get it with my robot. So he's quite new to Vincent's. Um, so that's what they did. I got brought in and what they initially were going to do was cut like all into my cheek, down my neck. And I have enough scars as it is that I obviously didn't want more. Um, so they decided to get it with a robot. So I went in for that surgery and that was really difficult because I felt like such a guinea pig the doctors were intrigued by my case. Um, I remember at one stage when I was in my hospital bed, there was about eight doctors around me asking loads of different questions and their yeah. eyes were just so wide with amazement. And I actually got quite annoyed. I just said, like, just leave me alone. I just, you know, I just want to spend time with my family before this operation. So... Um, was that oh, kind of an objectification at all? Like you become this medical case study as opposed to L, the human, the life. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I literally, I felt like a new toy. Yeah. That type of thing. Especially because you are kind of a new toy because people are coming in, they're lifting up one arm, checking your blood pressure. They're mm. sticking a needle into your arm or cannulas or whatever it may be. Um, and they're interested on you or in you on an academic level as yeah. opposed to on a human level, which yeah. would be really strange and not nice. Yeah. And there's a lot of junior doctors around and I didn't realize that a lot of junior doctors, they like shadow a senior doctor. So that's why there were so many around. Um, so I think that would, would benefit a patient just giving them context as to what's going on. Yeah. Um, so when I went in from operation, there was around, I don't know, four of the doctors in the room that were just chilling there, just watching me while I went under just to see what would happen. Um, so I had the operation and they really didn't know what to expect because they've never done this type of surgery before. Um, so they thought that when they'd make an incision that the lymph would just kind of pop out and say, okay this is me, you need to take mm. it. But that didn't happen. So they started kind of like playing around, for lack of a better word, to try and find this lymph node. Right. And apparently the surgeon stood up three times and he was like, I can't get this, get this girl out of here because it's in such a delicate area. It's at the very back of your throat. It's really near your spine. Um, and you, you, you don't want to be playing around that area. Um, so eventually the consultant went back again and he found a lymph node that was inflamed and he was like I've no idea if this is it but let's just take it out so they took out the lymph node they tested it and it tested positive for cancer so then I got told okay you need radioactive iodine again 
back in the quarantine. Back into quarantine. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and it's annoying because I kept getting told this is the last thing, this is the last thing. And it's just, it's like a wrestling match that I was constantly losing and I couldn't get out of the ring. Um, so I went back in uh, and thankfully I was, I was a bit more prepared this time. I knew what I could eat. I think I pretty much just starved myself last time. Um, and funny enough, the second round of radiation was actually way tougher mentally because I had way more energy. So, you know, I was waking up at like 8am and I was like, what am I going to do today? Yeah. So I brought in a yoga mat and I was doing like Pilates, yoga, meditation. Yeah. There was actually a gardener that used to come around and he used to talk to me through the window (laughs) and be like, what are you up to today? And I said, what are you up to today? Um, Hell, what? That's nuts. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, Can I I throw in here? So that's like you just being a beacon of strength and a great attitude. Yeah. And two another thing you're 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 missing from the story so far. I don't know if it's yet to come or if we've missed it. But while you were in hospital, you are very obviously a very good emailer and a very good texter because you both got a boyfriend over text yeah. and also uh were making sales over email. You yeah. weren't doing calls because you couldn't talk. But you were texting and emailing and still not just continuing a life, but building one still. I know. and It's that's, incredible uh, yeah. resilience. Uh, that's a funny thing. I think I kind of saw it like a release. So when I was emailing clients and they were freaking out about their campaigns, I was laughing. Yeah. So I was like, they have no idea I'm literally in a hospital bed and not able to like move my body. And, yeah. you know, probably on so much medication, I didn't even know what I was saying to them. Um, but that's that's... Honestly, one of the most powerful images, and you didn't mention that last time we had coffee. You, the most powerful image, you doing say Pilates in a quarantine room, <laughs> just having gone fifteen rounds and gotten the shit kicked out of you by cancer, and you're still doing that. Yeah, that's incredible. I know, I know. And the boyfriend thing is funny as well because we were messaging when I was still so sick, and he just had no idea. Yeah. Until obviously, I first our first day, and I dropped that bomb. Um. But it's, it's funny because our, our relationship is, it's very unique because people typically don't go through like a sickness in a relationship until obviously much later in life. Mm. But that was our relationship from day one. Yeah. So when I had my first operation, we were only going out about like two weeks. And it's funny because like obviously in a relationship, especially at the start, you want to be the best version of yourself yeah, and, you sure. know, look really well the whole time. And I absolutely did not look that way. And, you know, just stuck in hospital, like I... Probably with bad breath and greasy hair the whole time, but it's just—I don't know—all this stuff just—it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's funny. It's definitely a really unique relationship, and it's funny because I said I don't want to get into a relationship after you know being sick, but um, you know, I'm delighted I am, and it's helped me get through my illness really well when I really didn't expect that to happen. Right. How um, long did he not know for? Um, probably about a month. Mad. Yeah. And it was funny because our first date, I said, uh, can we go to a bar that isn't that loud? And he said, oh, are you really hung over from Christmas? Or like, have you been going out too much at New Year's? And I was just like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, Unbelievable. That's yeah. Mad. It's it's a funny one. Um, so anyway, I don't want to pull you off track again. No. You're doing yoga in the yeah. quarantine again. Yeah. Uh, so I did that. Um and then obviously left St. Luke's and you go through this period through three weeks after that you're not allowed to be around people because you're radioactive. So like me and my mom went for a meal after St. Luke's and like we sat so far away from each other. It looked like we were fighting because I needed food. I was so hungry. Yeah. Um. 
So obviously I couldn't go back to work. I also couldn't see my new boyfriend. So he literally got a girlfriend who went for an operation, then was radioactive, been through it all. Um, so had my radiation. Then that was only like April, which I completely like, that's really not that long ago. Um, and then now I've been back to work and now I'm in the, this unique situation where about maybe like three weeks ago, the doctors called me again to say, okay, something's in your lungs now. And when I got that news, I was like, okay, this is it. Like I'm, I'm dead now. This, mm. this is me. And I think that's, that's still my biggest fear. And I remember calling my boyfriend crying, being like, I'm going to die. Like it's, it's in my lungs now. And they started throwing out, you know, stage four. But I've actually found out now that when you're really young and have cancer, stage four doesn't exist because you're so young, you can maybe fight it. Um, and then I got told a week later, okay, this thing in your lungs was actually there before. We can't operate on it. So just live with it. And that's where I am now, which is yeah. a really weird situation to be in. So I'm just trying to live my life and constantly go for checkups and hope it's going to be okay. Yeah, right. What uh, a lot of questions. What is it about youth that makes us able to fight cancer? Because your body is literally just in its prime to right, okay. fight it. Um, and I think that stage four thing doesn't exist. I think that could just be for thyroid cancer because it's really slow growing. Like I've probably had this for about five years and not known about it. It's yeah, okay. really, really slow to grow. Um, so yeah, I think that's it. Uh, the idea of like hope. So were you kind of out of hope by the time the lung diagnosis came along? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you, they kicked you while you were down, basically. That's the thing. And I think I knew, okay, so the thing in my throat that was really small, then the radioactive iodine made sense to get everything that mm. was left. But the lung thing just didn't make sense. I was like, where has this come from? And especially when it's a lung. So I'm like, that's definitely related to smoking, which I don't do. Um, but then I realized that it's the first place it spreads to after your thyroid and Doctors are slow to release information. So it was only my last appointment. They were like, "L, your thyroid cancer was so bad. Like it had taken over your entire neck. Obviously it was going to spread to your lungs. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me this? That's good doctoring though, to not scare the crap out of you like that. Yeah, maybe. I would have, certainly for me, I like to, be, I like to have with, information withheld from me. I'm happy in my ignorance. Um, if someone didn't find, if your mom didn't see the lump and you didn't get it checked, what would have happened? Or Funny what enough, if there was no lump? I'm, I'm kind of, I'm thinking about the idea that people should go off and get checked. People should definitely go off and get checked. Um, I've never asked the question, what would happen if I didn't notice it? Yeah. Uh, and I don't really want to know the answer because it doesn't make a difference to me now. Mm. Um, but it's, cr so many people have this and they don't realize, especially females. You said that the other day. You yeah. said, you talked about a huge percentage of people having it. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to this talk recently. It actually turned to be extremely radical and I was so close to leaving in the middle of it. He basically told me to stop all forms of treatment and stop my medication. Oh God. Yeah. And go plant-based, which plant-based makes sense, but not the other stuff. Yeah. Um, but obviously everyone has their own views there. Um, but sorry, what was the question? Um, the idea of like people going get like a lot of people might have this people go get checked yes so yeah so it's like 70% of women have a thyroid problem uh, which is crazy that's what he said and it kind of makes sense because girls just have so much going on hormones all over the place but on top of that we put extra hormones into our body for contraception mm. and all of this affects the thyroid and so many girls have problems losing weight gaining weight uh, so you should go get your thyroid checked because it regulates everything. Um, so, 
and you're two times more likely to get thyroid cancer if you're female. And it's a young person's cancer. You're between the ages of 25 to 35. So I think everyone should go and get it checked. Yeah. And it's it's a blood test, but at the same time, my bloods came back fine. So I just check your neck for a lump because you never think cancer will be in your neck. No. Yeah, it's crazy to think. What is it about the way we're living now that makes us more predisposed to cancer? Um, I suppose there's a whole lot of different things, but I think with thyroid, it's radiation and that's... The phone. Phone. It's laptops. But it's it's everything. It's microwaves. So, you know, you're surrounded by radiation everywhere. And yeah. maybe people are just more susceptible to it. Yeah, you'd imagine. I, I really don't know. It's hard to think about. Uh, 5G apparently is going to be really bad. Those waves that go around the place are going to be very bad for us. Yeah. And um, there's a big movement against that, actually, because people are pretty worried about what it's going to do to us, basically. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Because yeah. if you think about it, we're just, it's literally everywhere. And then we sleep with our phones charging beside our heads. And what I used to do, which is so stupid looking back in the day, I used to put away my phone and put it behind my pillow, Same. which is... Yeah. It's like the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do because what that guy said that was really radical, it's like if you have your phone near a thyroid, it's literally like your thyroid is in a wrestling match. You're just constantly hitting it. So obviously it's going to break down at some Crazy. point. Crazy. Jesus. Yeah. Mad to think about. The... It's weird though because I remember when it, someone said to me before, you're actually going to be happy in a couple of years that you don't have a thyroid because it's so problematic, mm. which is kind of interesting. But at the same time, if we just decrease the amount of times we're on our phones and around laptops and things like that, it's, I think it will definitely help. Scary stuff. And like, I, I, I'm very conscious of the phone thing. I read about it a few years ago, but um, it's hard to avoid. I know. Like all work social is all on the phone. It's it's kind of nuts how we're losing the run of ourselves in that way. Or how um, addicted we are. Oh, like, it's crazy. It's mad. Like my screen time, I'm embarrassed by it. Really? Yeah. And, and sugar, white sugar. Like we're addicted to a lot of things basically. Yeah. Uh, all of which cause cancer. I don't know if I told you this. There was a guy um, who I read about a few years ago because my friend's dad got diagnosed with cancer while I was living with the friend and I started looking into cancer laws, just being curious. And I was talking to you a bit about it the other day with the telomeres and all the DNA strands and stuff. But this doctor was doing, a cancer doctor, was doing a test on brain cancer. And he was doing, say, four people. He was examining their brains. And the fifth guy didn't show up. And he was like, fuck's sake, this is the last guy I need. I'm going to, I'll just jump in there myself, do my own brain and prove whatever. I remember this. And he was like, shit, I've got brain cancer. He saw he had a tumor in his own brain. And then he became kind of obsessed with it. And uh, he went off and kind of researched and he found that the annual treatment for, the official treatment for uh, brain cancer was 50 grand a year, I think in America. And if he went for a walk, so 40% of whatever, 40% of people who did that 50 grand treatment got cured. Uh, people who didn't take the treatment and went for a walk for three hours a day and didn't have technology and ate vegan and that was probably the three things, but the oxygen and vegan thing were key. They had a 70% chance of survival. So there, there are these habits that we can have and not have that will make an enormous difference to our health. Is that consistent with your understanding as well? 100%. And what's actually quite interesting is um, once you get cancer, there's always a high chance of recurrence, which is something I'm obviously terrified of. Yeah. And it's something I questioned a lot. I said, you know, I'm going in for radiation treatment again. I also do loads and loads of scans. Surely I'm susceptible to more cancer. And the views I get on this are different the whole time, which is really, really worrying, especially as a female, because when you're around as a radiation, it isn't good for fertility. Right. Um. So 
what I try to do is I'm not going to shy away from my treatment because I think that's what needs to be done. But adopting a lifestyle where you're healthier, you're active, you're away from your phone, and then hopefully they just complement one another and then yeah. just staying on top of things and you constantly go for scans or whatever it may be. And I hope that will lead to me not having to go through this again. Yeah. Uh, I'd imagine most people walk around with a healthy sort of bank balance of or stock of, uh, I don't know what to call it. I don't know if it's hope or stability or comfort, basically. A comfort. And they've got elbow room there. And if uh, they come home and they realise something's wrong with the family, they can go from whatever they're at, a five to a one. You were plodding along at a one or a zero for a long time there. And then you're, you now have come out of that. But you've been told that this lung thing is not really going anywhere and you need to keep an eye on it. Where, how do you get yourself back up to a regular balance of, you know, stable outlook or positivity or hope or whatever it is that I'm trying to talk about? I don't know yeah. what the I bet some language has a word for it. Uh, yeah, stability, I guess, or uh, consistency in your outlook. Does it's, that make sense? It's really hard. No, and it, it does. It's because sometimes I think, I get these sudden realizations that I'm like, what am I doing here sitting at my desk? I've just been through so much. This what exact if this comes thing. back? I need to go travel the world. Mm. And I've had that so many times because funny enough, I've been saving to move to Australia for like three years now. So, you know, if I wanted to, I, I could do that. Um, but at the same time, I'm scared, you know, and I'm, I'm waiting to get the all clear from different doctors. And it's something I need to mentally accept that I'm probably never, ever going to get the all clear. So I was with my voice doctor today and he was just like, you know, your voice sounds absolutely great. You should not sound this way. So let's hope you don't need anything else. See you when you do, which is so unsettling. Yeah. I, I just want to get the like, okay, we're done here. Um, but I'm never going to get that. So I think at some stage I will just pack up and leave. Um, and it's, it's getting to a place that I'm mentally comfortable to do that with. Mm. I don't think I'll be 100% comfortable, but definitely a bit more comfortable than I am now yeah. so I feel like with the voice thing I'm just like okay I, I can focus on this now I can go and if needs be I kind of like a spoken agreement with my surgeon if I call him I need the injection pretty quickly yeah um and then I'm waiting on my cancer surgeon to I'm kind of waiting for six months to pass and get that scan done and then hopefully that turns into like a year that I can come back so kind of getting to that part, then I yeah. should be happy. That's where time is an incredible healer. Just putting time between you and the event, whatever the event might be, is even if you you don't feel like you're doing anything extraordinary in that time or extraordinarily healing, the time itself seems to work as a healer. Yeah. Um, and then another thing we were talking about the other day is the different layers to recovery. So you've your physical and you've maybe your emotional or uh, mental, but then there's the psychological. There's so many different parts and it is a journey and I think time is the only thing that can yeah uh, kind of work on that what's There's actually funny is um I remember talking to someone and I was like I feel like I'm two different people it's like my mind is like go 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 get back to work you're finished with cancer but then I'd get these like panic attacks where I'm in work where I have to fight or flight and I'd say why isn't this adding up and someone explained it to me so well there they said it's like a parent and a child so your parent your mind is the parent that's like come on go 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 we need to get this done and your nervous system is like the child and your nervous system has had so much trauma. You've been put to sleep and, you know, your mind is unconscious during this time. So it's your body that's feeling this pain. And, you know, it's, you know, your body works by itself and all of a sudden it's being put under control by this machine. Mm. So it's gone through massive big trauma and you need to kind of hold your nervous system by the hand 
and be like, okay, we can get through this together and build back up to a place that you feel confident, both physically and mentally to go back to your normal day. And that took me a a long time to figure out because I couldn't comprehend why they weren't adding up, but it makes sense now. Well, there's a mismatch there as well, because you've got a human body and a societal mind. So your body is, is the output of human and nature and the natural world. Whereas your mind is is an output because it's been pounded by it for twenty five years or twenty six years now, it your your mind is the output of society, and it's telling you go 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 earn 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 sell 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 whatever it is work, uh, and then your societal mind doesn't give your human natural body the human natural care that it needs, and that's there's a there's, they basically speak different languages yeah and so it's going to be really hard for them to get on the same plane yeah. Yeah, it's funny, funny because you, you wouldn't think about that, but then when someone said it to me, I was like, oh, "Makes complete sense." Yeah, I find it very hard. Or I have found it very hard. I do it now. I think I don't really set alarms in the morning. Okay. I just let. I think. I think alarms are bonkers. I think having an alarm to get up for work is kind of like your boss because you do it because your boss is going to give out to you yeah. if you're not there on time. It's like your boss forcing you to have a can of coke every day after lunch. There, it's like having them force you to do something that's bad for your body for the, the the benefit of the company or whatever it might be. I think as we learn more about sleep, people will realize that this is a crazy thing we do to just abuse our body by waking it up forcibly every morning with a horrible alarm, even if it's in like deep level three sleep. Yeah. And you're in the middle of a rapid eye dream or whatever, like the very rest you need, bam, all of a sudden alarm goes up and you have to just pull yourself out of bed. Yeah. I think it's a form of abuse to the body, basically. And, and people learn right. that over time. But I think as well, and I don't know if I'm a freak in thinking this, but my whole life, I've always known that if I go to bed and if I say to myself, you need to get up at seven, I will wake up in and around seven o'clock. Yeah. And so I, I don't really set alarms anymore unless I've been on like a night out and I know I need to get up in the morning, yeah. then I definitely will. Um, but guaranteed, if people say to themselves, okay, I need to wake up at a particular time, you will wake up at that time. Yeah, with the circadian rhythm. It's like a built-in body clock and it's a rhythm. It's it's you your body starts realizing, okay, 10 o'clock, need to go to bed. Yeah. Seven o'clock, need to get up. Yeah. And it teaches itself. And it's a much healthier way of doing it than pulling yourself out of, unnaturally out of a sleep or yeah. anything like that. Um, Yeah. W- when you think about, back to what we were talking about, the being in trouble, looking at everyone walking past, they don't realize how good they have it. Most of, I hope, most of the listeners are going to be in that position, if not all, please God. What do you say to them? Definitely. Like it's, it's funny because in some way or another, people are going to have that jealousy aspect. And I don't think you should, you know, look at someone like me and be like, oh, well, obviously she had the jealousy. Mine, uh, my feeling of jealousy, it's, it isn't deserved because I haven't gone through cancer. When in actual fact, it shouldn't really be viewed that way because everyone's been through different traumas mm. in life. And, you know, you're going to feel um, jealousy at some point and it's completely natural. Um, but... I don't really know how to yeah. deal with it best. I mean, I think eventually over time, my jealousy went away as I started to come back to life. Um, and I don't know. I, I think if I did hold on to that jealousy, I I wouldn't be a very good person. And yeah. I'd be really negative the whole time. And I think in my situation, I had to adopt a positive mindset. And so many people say, I don't know how you were so positive. And I've turned around to say, I actually didn't have an option. I always say that exactly. Because thing. There's yes, no choice. Because if, if I was really sad and upset the whole time, I'd probably still be in hospital. Yeah. And something else would have happened. So I had to be really positive and just try and focus on getting through it and getting back to, I don't want to say my old life because I'm, 
I'll never go back to my old life again. And, you know, I'm better for not going back mm. to my old life, but getting out of hospital and being able to go back to my place of work and being able to travel and everything. Yeah, you will. I, I, I really, really believe you will become a better version of yourself than you would have, ever would have become without this having happened. 100%. On the topic of versions of yourself. So, again, going back to that really strong image of you doing yoga in the, the quarantine. Was that Anel Flood that you knew? Had you ever met her before? Had she ever come out before? No. Or did you only start getting to know her as she went through this hell? No, it's funny enough, I remember people, people that do meditation, they love meditation. And I remember before, I'd be like, I just don't get meditation. Like, yeah. no, I just can't switch off. I'm going to be thinking of different things and whatnot. And, but now I can. And funny enough, I go and talk to this therapist guy and he actually hooked me up to a machine to look at my pulse because uh, I was telling him about these like different panic attacks and everything that I was having. And um, so I was sitting down and he said, okay, meditate. And I didn't really feel like I'd do anything, but my heart rate just slowed right down. And what I actually do is I picture myself being back in Sri Lanka. And I remember when I was there, there was one evening and it was just really, really quiet. The sun was going down and I was by myself on the beach and I remember thinking, God, when I go home, I have to go through all this treatment. I'm going to really appreciate this moment and take it all in. And that's the moment I go back to when, you know, I'm feeling nervous about anything or I need to meditate. And I didn't think I was actually having that much of an effect on my body until I saw him recording me and my heart rate just went right down. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's mad. But I think it's important everyone has, I mean, everyone talks about your happy place or whatever, but... I think, you know, you need to think in that moment, okay, this will be my happy place. And I remember in that moment thinking, I have a huge journey to go on and I'm just going to focus on this moment right now on the beach by myself looking at the sunset. Mm. And that moment has just stuck with me. Yeah. I'd love to know how your uh, North Star or your direction in life is going to be changed by this. I bet, bet, bet it will. If it hasn't yet, it's probably because things just haven't seeped in yeah. to the extent that they will yet. Uh, but I bet things are going to be will look different for you and much better as well and just much Definitely. clearer. I think things like this peel back the layers on life and you're lucky to get a look at a layer that is so deep that most people don't even ever get to look at. I know. And so you're able to walk around with this uh, outlook or view or knowledge or understanding that most people, and through no fault of their own, they just haven't been lucky enough to have been blessed with something like cancer or heart trouble. Exactly. Where they don't get to look at those layers and it makes everything better. It makes everything better than it ever would have been otherwise. Definitely. And you probably feel it too. I feel like I'm way more rational of a person. Yeah. So, you know, if something's going wrong, people would just freak out and they throw all the toys of the problem. They're like, this is the worst thing in the world. But I now think in situations just like, okay, this has happened. Let's just focus on the different things I need to do to get out of this moment. And it stands to you in every single aspect of life. It stands to you in work, when you're traveling, if your phone gets robbed or something like that you're just way more rational about everything and people don't have that no, in life until they go sometimes it something. pisses people off <laughs> you're oh, like absolutely. this is fine it's, why are you stressing <laughs> yeah. like, shut up I need to get it out I just need to release yeah I think that what I notice most is when I'm in the car with people and they're giving out about the traffic yeah. and I'm just staring at them in awe being like why are you freaking out about this yeah. there's literally nothing you can do you're also giving out to me about it I don't care so mm. just there's nothing we can do um, on the topic of traffic, <laughs> I have a funny observation. If you and I went for a 40-minute drive and took 40 minutes, we'd be happy out. If we went for a 10-minute drive and it took 40 minutes, we'd be re and because we were stuck in traffic, we weren't moving. We'd both go nuts. Yeah. 
it's because progress, I think. People feel good so long as they're moving forward in traffic, but once they're stuck and not moving, they start to go nuts. I, it's just something I, I've thought about or observed. Yeah, that, that makes it's sense. It's not the amount of time you're wasting in the car. It's totally unrelated to what we're talking about. It's not the amount of car you, time you're wasting in the car. It's just the feeling that you're wasting it rather than... Uh, doing something. Yeah, yeah. When you're probably not doing anything else productive. That's, what are you doing for the rest it. of 40 minutes? You're not actually losing anything. Yeah. But it, I think it's just that feeling. That's helped me calm down in traffic any, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it's interesting to observe. They'd be some of the main day-to-day applications of, of this stuff, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's pretty cool. No, no other big things, to, uh, big bits of wisdom. We'll go into a couple of quick fire questions then, if not. Let me think. Um, no, I feel like I've kind of run through everything. But Fire everybody, questions at me. everybody can just relax, be accepting of the world around them. Yeah, everyone just needs to happens. chill out. That yeah. is my, that is my biggest takeaway. Mm. Um, and I say that a lot to people. It probably pisses them off, but. Yeah, everyone does just need to chill out. Yeah, and once you're gone, you're gone, and there's nothing. You you don't take any of it with you, basically. You don't remember any of it, so you might as well just enjoy it and be happy through it while you can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the quick fires aren't meant for you; they're meant for the average guest. Okay. So you're going to be relieved from all this cancer <laughs> talk, I think. Um, something you wish you did in college that you didn't do. Hmm. I feel like this is supposed to be really quick off the top of my head and I'm taking a minute to think about it. Take your time. Um, I'll give you a hint. Usually people say startup competitions, J1, uh, start a business, drink more, join more societies. I think I wish I traveled more. Traveled more, okay. Definitely, 100%. My first year of college, I just went to EOS. So cultural. Um, So... Real cultural immersion, yeah. Yeah, yeah, learned a lot about myself there. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely wish I traveled more. And it was definitely me thinking, oh, I don't have enough money. When people travel the world on nothing. Or you could do a bank loan for no interest, which is mad. I know, yeah. I I suppose I just didn't really scope out my options. Yeah. And I think I blamed people. Actually, I have it. I wish I traveled by myself. Oh, nice. Yes. Why? I love traveling by myself. I. It's something I've always wanted to do, just to see if I can do it. Mm. Um. And I guess I just didn't have the confidence to do it when I was that young. But when I was in Sri Lanka, I bumped into all these UK students are really good for doing it. UK students? Yeah. Yeah, maybe they are. Dutch certainly are. I know that. Yeah, they're all, like I met some of them, they're like, oh, I'm 19, taking a gap year, yeah. doing whatever. I'm like, that's amazing. It's How a brilliant are you doing thing to that? Do. Um, so I, I wish I did that because I think I would have learned a lot about myself. Definitely would have built on like resilience. And I just would have seen a different yeah. part of the world. So The key thing there is if you travel with a friend and it's just the two of you or a girlfriend or whatever, and it's just the two of you or five of you, whatever many people, you never leave your cultural context because you're always with those people from your culture back in Ireland or Dublin or wherever you're from. If you go on your own, you part ways with that cultural context. There's nothing connecting you to it anymore. And so you end up hanging out with English or RG or Spanish people or whatever. And all these people are coming in from different cultures and you have nothing tying you to your own one. And that's where the growth is, I believe. Yeah. So I'm a huge advocate of traveling on your own. I think it's incredible. Yeah. And I also think, okay, there's like a mass generalization, but I think Irish people were quite single-minded. 
and we just think everything else is weird that isn't in our culture. Yeah. Um, and we're so quick to be like, oh no, that's weird, that's weird. Yeah, we do have quite a strong closed culture, I'd say. We do, yeah. massively. And I think when you travel <laughs> alone, you'd see different things and you'd be way more open-minded. Mm. Um, so that's definitely something I nice. wish I did. Nice, that's sure. a class one. Something you wish you, something you know now that you wish you knew back then in college. Mm. I'm guessing that the sales thing might be one. Yes. I love how you're prompting me. Um, yeah, no, I, I wish I had the confidence for sales, but I knew more about it on the tech world. Um, 100%. I also just were convinced that I was like, oh no, I can't work in Google because I've never worked in tech before. I could never even apply after college, yeah. which is not the case. There's so many graduates there. You just need to make sure that you diversify yourself a bit from just having, you know, a good degree or whatever type of degree. So doing loads of like, internships-ish but more just like what makes you an interesting person doing like charity work or setting up an organizations or different things like that um so I wish I got involved in more things like that with the idea of getting into um a tech company and sales early in life you mentioned how not to die is there a book that you've read that you recommend to other people um a lot of people have read it the four agreements the four agreements yeah 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 Yeah, that's very good um so that's something the minute I read it I've always kind of believed in karma, but after reading that book, I developed a guilty feeling in my stomach if I didn't follow one of the four things. Mm. Um, And it's something that just crops up in my mind. Like when I notice people are bitching about blah, blah, like Irish people bitch about each other the whole time. And it just comes up in my head that I'm like being back all with your word. And it talks about how powerful uh, Hitler's voice was. He was able to convince a whole country, you know, to go against their ways and follow him. So it just shows how powerful the voice is. Um, so that's something I definitely follow as yeah. well. Absolutely love it. It's like 100 pages. So you can finish it in a day. Nice. You seem to have gone on a crazy journey, a fantastic journey yeah. of confidence, development of confidence slash coming out of your shell type thing. There's a lot of people out there who would love to go on a similar journey. What advice would you have for them? or What would you say to them? Because it sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, and funny enough, I was actually such a timid person. I can before. imagine. Like, I, a lot of what you're saying speaks to having gone through this transformation of confidence. Yeah, and I, I would actually describe myself as an introvert that can put on a mask of being an extrovert. But emphasis on the word mask. I'm definitely right. hiding it, and you know, get worried in social situations. But I'd, I'd put on this kind of facade that I was an extrovert. Yeah. Um, so I think you just need to put yourself into situations that you're not particularly comfortable with. Um, so if you're in college, you know, joining a sport that you don't know if you're going to be good at and just putting yourself in those type of social situations, traveling by yourself and even just go to like one city by yourself. You don't need to do the whole backpacker thing in Asia, um, but just try different things like that. Um, and then even career-wise, career-wise do something that you're not 100% qualified for. So, you know, if it says you need one year sales experience, just say, okay, well, I don't have that, but yeah. I can sell myself in these different ways. So I think you need to put yourself in those situations in order to build up your confidence. And I hate the same, but it's literally fake it till you make it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so. a huge part of it. And lastly, then a quote to live by. Ah, God. Um, am I cheating if I just say the four agreements and the four things that are in there? Okay. No, go. That'll be valuable. Okay, so it's be impactful with your words. Um, never take anything personally. Uh, don't make judgments and always do your best. Al Floods, you're an inspiration. Thank, Thank you very you. much for coming on. Thank you.